Hi there. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris, the host of Please Explain, the daily news podcast from The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Today, we're bringing you an episode from our archive, looking into Australia's Home Affairs Department and how vast sums of taxpayer money was used to fund suspect payments to powerful Pacific Island politicians. Investigative journalists Nick McKenzie and Michael Batchelard discuss how payments were made to run offshore processing of asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus Island, and the deals raising integrity concerns warranting scrutiny by the department. We're releasing it for you today on December 27th. So Nick and Michael, the Home Truths investigation is a result of more than six months of research. So what started this all for you, Nick? I'll begin with you. Where does this journey begin? Well, it began through a number of different tip-offs about different aspects of the way the Home Affairs Department and uh, the Department of Immigration Border Protection, which was its predecessor, was operating in respect of its core functions. And you might think of Home Affairs' core function as follows, as stopping bad people from coming into Australia, criminals and the, and the like, those who wish to exploit our visa system, including those who wish to bring people into work as, as exploited workers or, or at their worst as human slaves. And part of that stopping people coming in who shouldn't be coming in is offshore processing. This specific solution, very controversial solution that prevented asylum seekers coming here by boat from arriving to the mainland. Instead, they were sent to Manus Island and Nauru. And the Department of Home Affairs and its predecessor agency was responsible for managing offshore processing. And the tip-offs we were getting were, were sort of twofold. Number one, criminals were coming to the country via plane. They weren't being stopped and once they were here they weren't being appropriately removed by Home Affairs uh, in sufficient time and offshore processing was and had been corrupted. Right and so before we get to some of the concerns that have been raised in the Pacific involving Australian taxpayer money can you tell me how does Australia's offshore processing of asylum seekers and refugees actually operate? Michael maybe you can come in here and just sort of walk us through the main players. Yes, well, in 2012, when the, as it was then, Department of Immigration and Border Protection reopened the, the camps uh, under the Rudd government and then subsequently the uh, the government of Tony Abbott, they didn't want to run them themselves, so they put uh, head contractors in charge. The contracts really went to two companies, one on Manus Island called Paladin, the other one on uh, Nauru called Canstruct, which was a privately owned company uh, based in Brisbane. And... It was the responsibility of those companies to outsource the service provision of the kinds of things that they needed when they were running the centres. And it's in those practices, the outsourcing to other companies, some of which uh, were to people who had political connections. And on Manus particularly, the approaches that were made to Paladin by politicians for payments uh, to get really basic things done like visas and work permits for the people who were trying to run the centre. And there's an allegation here that the government kind of knew that it was going to be really difficult, controversial and potentially uh, exposed to corruption to do uh, these kinds of deals in these kinds of places. And so they outsourced it in order to, to, to get themselves plausible deniability. Okay, so the Home Affairs Department, which manages our border and national security, it paid private companies to run the camps in Nauru and Papua New Guinea. So Nick, what do we know about how these taxpayer funds moved around and the politicians who had influence over the past decade? 
Well, the Home Affairs knew from the outset in the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, its predecessor knew from the outset that it was always going to be high risk running large detention centres, regional processing centres in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. They're very corruption-prone countries. And the risk was that Aussie taxpayer dollars, Home Affairs was spending to run these processing centres and systems would be filtered off and taken by corrupt officials in those countries. So the risk was obvious. The onus was on the department to manage that risk. And at the heart of our revelations is the fact that the risk, this risk wasn't managed. You had company after company after company controlled, owned sometimes by very, very senior politicians uh, in Nauru especially, gaining contracts. And evidence that we've dug up shows there were people who were really concerned that those contracts had been artificially inflated. So this vast amount of taxpayer money sloshing around the Pacific, the risk was it would be misused. And sure enough, the evidence suggests that it was misused. Now, why do we care about this? It's not just the wastage of Australian taxpayer dollars. When you are reinforcing or fueling corruption in the Pacific Islands, that comes at a great cost. You undermine democracy. You hurt local development. Money that should be spent on roads and health ends up going into corrupt politicians' pockets, entrenching their power at the expense of the local population. That's the system that Australia was fueling uh, through its neglect, the way that the, the Home Affairs Department was uh, not doing enough to, to ensure that these taxpayer dollars weren't being abused. And that's what's at the heart of the scandal at the moment. And there's a broader geopolitical point here as well. Australia is in the Pacific. Uh, it's one of the key players in the Pacific. It's trying to keep China to some extent to, to play a great power game with China in the Pacific. And one of the things that we advertise when we operate in those areas is that we follow the rule of law uh, and the rules-based order, and China doesn't. And they, you know, they do various things, build roads to nowhere or bribe local politicians and so on. It reduces our... Australia's uh, moral uh, standing in in those kinds of areas, in that kind of uh, um, dispute or contest, to have these kinds of things happening. And yet it seems to have been happening quite freely. Right. Now, Nick, I've got a follow-up question for you first, and then, Michael, I'd like to ask you as well something similar, which is, which politicians are we talking about? Because my understanding is that there's one politician in particular, the former president of Nauru, who is possibly implicated in all of this. So this is massive. That's right. We must be really careful at the outset to say the question of whether someone has acted criminally or corruptly can only be answered by an independent investigative agency. It's not the job of media uh, to accuse someone of engaging in criminality, and we are not doing that. But what we are saying is we can show, and we've uncovered the fact, that these home affairs overseen subcontracts in offshore processing were going to a whole raft of, of senior politicians and officials. And perhaps the most egregious case involves the president of Nauru. He was a subcontractor providing a water trucking service. Now, this is an official, a very powerful official, who had huge sway over the offshore processing regime on Nauru. Yet the government of Australia, the Home Affairs Department, the, the Department of Immigration Border Protection and its lead contractors thought it appropriate, despite his significant power and influence as a public official, to also employ him as a, as a subcontractor and pay him millions of dollars. 
Now, the corruption risks evident there are clear, uh, given at the very least that conflict of interest that arises. Should that have been done? Well, that's, that's the question that is being asked now. And so, Michael, to you, can you tell me about the concerns raised by senior employees at the contracting companies and also with Home Affairs and what the government actually knew? Well, we think the government knew quite a lot, or the department did at least, because every contract over $50,000 needed to be reported to the department and and approved by the department uh, before they would pay the invoices. So it stands to reason that they would see some of these companies uh, coming through the, the invoicing system. In addition, we know from a whistleblower from Paladin on Manus Island uh, in Papua New Guinea that he and uh, some of his senior colleagues were reporting some of these approaches. Now Manus, it was a little bit different. It wasn't so much subcontracts as uh, people approaching them for bribes, allegedly, and for uh, for people who were simply asking for money in return for a service, that is, in this case, getting them visas and work permits, which they had a great deal of difficulty getting. Now, we're not naming any of those people, but our whistleblower, the former director of Paladin, Ian Stewart, has told us that those approaches came directly and indirectly, in one case actually via an official from the Home Affairs Department itself, and that when they tried to report those to Home Affairs, that the that they were essentially told, please don't put that in writing, just make it a phone call. Uh, the advice I received from the CEO of Paladin was that uh, they were happy with the email at Home Affairs, but they would prefer a phone call, which I thought was a, a bit weak. And I think they're looking to, to me, that's them actively managing to keep any records of these uh, reports. Oh, hang on a second, so you were told the Department of Home Affairs had spoken to the boss of Paladin, happy to receive corruption concerns, but not in writing, prefer a phone call. Yeah, that's what, that's, that's, that was what was relayed to me. And what did you take that to mean? Well, I just, I mean, I took that to mean that they don't really want to receive corruption reports because it's inconvenient. And his view is that they were not interested in having a record of that because they didn't want that on the record. Uh, they just wanted um, it to, to, to go quietly. Has the right thing been done in your experience? I think people want to do the right thing and they, they attempt to. I think, uh, but I think this management approach and this, uh, which you would say is a see no evil, hear no evil approach, this management approach of keeping, of keeping the reports at distance, keeping the subcontracts which are dubious at distance, is, uh, is effective for Home Affairs and the Australian Government to say that, well, we're not involved in it directly. We'll be right back. Okay, and then in March last year, the Australian Federal Police launched a bribery and fraud investigation into contracts on Nauru. So Nick, over to you. Why has this taken so long? Well, that's an excellent question. We don't really know the answer to that. What we can say with confidence is that our Home Affairs' lead contractors, so Broad Spectrum, Canstruct and Paladin, uh, figures within all three uh, lead contractors and aspects of those the way those lead contractors were doing their business showed absolute red flags. People were concerned at Broad Spectrum that there were corrupt payments occurring. We know from Paladin, uh, its former directors, not only was approached to pay bribes, he says the company did pay bribes. The AFP arrived very late in the piece. They begin a bribery and fraud investigation sometime early last year, better late than never. 
uh, but it comes after many, many years of suspect payments. And uh, I think a fair question to ask is, does the federal police have the capacity and expertise to get to the bottom of, of a decade plus of suspect payments? Or really, is this a case for a, an extraordinary commission of inquiry or the National Anti-Corruption Commission, an entity that may not have criminal prosecution as its end goal, uh, in contrast to the police, but might just simply want to get to the bottom of what's going on and hold those responsible to account. Okay, now I mentioned at the very start of this podcast episode that this is the culmination of six months of work. But actually, in fact, particularly from you, Nick, you've actually been looking into home affairs for years now. And this investigation into offshore processing is really part of a much, much larger problem with the Home Affairs Department and how it operates. You know, that by focusing on boat arrivals and spending billions to house them offshore, that's actually sort of taken attention away from perhaps what the core business of of the Home Affairs Department is, which is, you know, helping legitimate migrants arrive and settle. So, Nick, can you tell us more about that? Well, I think a critical thing that we've learned in our Uh, investigation which has really gone for well over a year I've spoken to many police forces around the country and they're concerned that there's been exploitation of our visa system quite blatant exploitation that's allowed organized crime to thrive in Australia to bring workers from offshore to be exploited sometimes in the sex industry to bring drug mills drug traffickers into the country and home affairs and its sort of system that it oversees hasn't work to stop that occurring in a way that uh, at least our policing sources say should have occurred. But ultimately, the, the key rationale for Home Affairs was let's bring all these agencies together under a, a one framework and a, and a shared policy framework, and that will increase intelligence sharing and shared purpose. And ultimately, we have criminals coming to the country. They should not have been allowed to stay here. And Home Affairs is at least partly responsible. And I think it's incumbent upon the Albanese government to now say, well, where does accountability lie and who should be responsible? And there's not been a single official within our system or a single politician to really take responsibility for these failings. Why not? And and just to sort of hone in a bit further, you both had a massive piece over the weekend in our papers, and it was also the focus of a 60 Minutes episode, specifically violent Albanian organized criminals who have misused Australia's visa system to build a drug business big enough to even threaten the Comancheros. So can you tell us a bit about that? Well, well, state police forces all over the country and federal agencies have been dealing with a steady growth in Albanian organised crime. It's a terrific case study. The Albanian mafia became proficient expert at getting visas for its members, uh, even to the extent where the Albanian mafia got federal government licensed migration agents in Australia to help get Albanian gangsters into the country. And once here, they've been engaging in consistent, serious organised crime and sometimes violent crime. And the most egregious example of that we exposed in the weekend, there was a, an Albanian gangster who came into the country in a false passport back in 2013. He gamed our visa system over and over again. And in 2018, after years spent on temporary visas he should never have got, he shot dead a Melbourne man uh, who he suspected was trying to burgle his marijuana crop house that he was running. But a case of a, of a temporary visa Albanian mafia member should not have been in the country, was in the country, was involved in serious drug trafficking and organised crime, and then took, took the life of an Australian. A great example of how our system was failing to keep up with the way the Albanian mafia has been exploiting our border security controls. Wow. And so, I guess to wrap up, Michael, what happens now? 
Well, we've had the extraordinary situation as a result of our reporting over the weekend that we've had uh, Claire O'Neill, the minister, saying the immigration system is broken, uh, fundamentally flawed, uh, certainly based on a couple of reports, the Nixon report and the Parkinson report that she herself commissioned. But at the same time, we've had uh, the Home Affairs Department coming out and that she administers coming out and saying, well, these are isolated incidents and everything otherwise is going pretty well. Um, and if you know of anything bad, please refer it to the NAC. So I think... We're talking, yes, about the potential of, uh, of an anti-corruption commission inquiry into these contracts, but also I think there is a political question here for Labor about whether or not it uh, continues to, to have faith in the department, both in its structure and its personnel, and, uh, and look into that. And that, that, I think, is more a political question. Well, I know we'll all be looking forward to your next report on this, as your previous reports on home affairs have led to investigations themselves. So thank you so much, Michael and Nick, for joining us. Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks for your time. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Hannah Mills Turbot and Julia Carcatzel, with technical assistance by Chi Wong. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.